Good morning. Good morning. Isn't it great to be back together again, even if it's outside? And we couldn't ask for better August weather than what we have right here today, right? It's, it's amazing. So I'm going to praise the Father and say thank you for us being together. Uh, I hope that you've been encouraged. It's so hard to find things to be encouraged about during this season of COVID, the isolation and so forth. But when God's people can get back together, we have that opportunity. And for those that are watching online, we want to welcome you. It's just so good to uh, just feel this presence, to have the music, the worship. It's, it's a great thing. So as John mentioned, uh, we've been for the last seven weeks on a series on sanctification. Uh, we've been really focused a lot on different New Testament sections of Scripture, mostly Paul's writings, uh, Colossians 3, Galatians 4, uh, Romans, and so forth, and, and those have been good. But uh, as we come into this morning, we still haven't answered a question, which is, what do we do with the law? How do we handle the law? This morning, as I thought about that, I, I, I couldn't help but remember uh, back in the day when I was in grade school. Now, most of you who have been uh, through grade school, and that's all of us, I think, pretty much here, uh, we can remember teachers. Teachers are what define our grade school experience for the most part. And uh, at least in our experience in South Omaha, uh, our teachers had nicknames, uh, adjectives that kind of described their approach to teaching, their classroom. You know, we had fun Mrs. Lovegren. We had uh, really smooth Mrs. Jones. Uh, we had nice Miss Ball. Um, but then every school has at least one or two teachers uh, that have a little bit different adjectival existence, right? Uh, they're the tough ones, the strict ones, the ones that uh, didn't put up with any messing around. We had a couple in my school, one we called uh, Mrs. Heim, the warlord. Uh, she was the one that uh, just, she had no problem with the little physical assessment of the situation. Uh, I got called out into the hallway one day because I had gotten into a fight on the way to school and the other kid had gotten hurt and so there was the safety patrol at our classroom door. Mrs. Heim comes out, calls me to the doorway and she was one of those teachers that kept her nails, I think it was a good half inch long, right? So she could do the sternum poke, you know. Mr. Foster, what do you think you were doing? You know, and every poke was just like, ah, ah, ah. And it only took one experience like that before I realized I'm not going there again. Well, coming out of third grade, my friends, Jerry and Mike and I, we were uh, always together. We usually uh, were in class together, but we knew coming into fourth grade we were going to experience a new situation. In our grade school, there were two sections of fourth grade. You didn't know which one you were going to be in until the last day of school. You get the report card, and then you could look on the back, and under the comments that the teacher had written about you, the principal would have written next year, next fall, uh, please report to this classroom. Now, there were two sections of fourth grade, two separate teachers, and one teacher was considered a lot of fun. Everybody liked her. Uh, she was easygoing, relaxed. Uh, everybody wanted to be in that room, right? So we get to the last day of school. 
We get outside, we open up our report cards, and trust me, we usually did not want to open up our report cards, but we did that day. And we're checking them, and my friend Jerry says, yes, Mrs. Lovegren, well, yeah, yeah. And Mike opens up his, and he goes, yes, Mrs. Lovegren, yes. And I open up mine, and it says Mrs. Maxner. I had one of those tough teachers. Not only was this breaking up our friendship, but this meant that I was not going to enjoy my fourth grade year. At least that's what I was convinced of. And so it was a long, long summer, knowing that that's where I was going to wind up come September. So September came, and I was hanging around in the playground with my friends, and after a lot of backslapping and poor guy and, oh, I hope you enjoy your death and all this kind of stuff, you know, you go into the classroom building, and I walked up to the fourth grade room, to Mrs. Maxner's room, take a seat, and I noticed that we were assigned desks. wasn't your choice. And my desk was right in the front row. And I was right in front of Mrs. Maxner. Now, Mrs. Maxner, I don't think, smiled for the first month or two of school. She was strict. She was tough. And there on the chalkboard were her rules for the classroom, Maxner's Law, five rules that we had to obey. And then she went through them very carefully, one by one by one by one. And then she explained to us what would be the consequences if we broke those laws. And she did this every morning, I think well into October, going through each rule, just so that in case we missed it, the first 36 times, we were going to finally grasp it, right? This is the law. I chose not to test the waters in that situation. I, I had a small amount of intelligence, at least enough to know that wasn't going to go well for me. But you know, a weird thing happened that school year. Somewhere, I think at least around November, December, it began to dawn on me. This has been a school year unlike any other school year that I had experienced. I really had begun to enjoy it. You see, those laws were in place, Maxner's laws, so that we stayed in place. I didn't have to worry about being in fights or goofing off or missing out on something essential. Uh, I didn't have to watch my back, nor did anyone else have to watch their backs. We were learning actually learning. That classroom was set up so that it would maximize the educational experience. And I hate to say this, but somewhere along the line there, I actually learned some things in that fourth grade year. It, be it became very clear to me that this was an ideal situation to create a great learning environment. To this day, I look back, and that fourth grade year is by far my favorite year in school. Even though there wasn't a lot of clowning around, even though we didn't play a lot of games, we didn't have all the fun that we could hear coming out of Miss Lovegren's room, still, I loved it. And I loved Mrs. Maxner. What made the difference? I believe the law, the law made the difference. Her rules made the difference. I learned that year that law is good. Law is good. God is a God of laws. 
as we've been going through sanctification and we're, we're basically asking the question, how can we as Christians live a sanctified life? How can I be most like Jesus Christ, most holy? And most of the time, because we live in this New Testament, post-New Testament era, we're not saying, well, I want to live by the law. But yet the law is foundational to what we're doing. We know that as we look at the Old Testament, law plays a huge role. As you read those stories, you recognize that it's just an ongoing, cyclic recurrent of law given, law broken, law punishment, restoration. Law given, law broken, law punished, restoration. Over and over and over again. The children of Israel seem the most inept of God's people. How in the world could they break the law this often? But they do. They did. 90% of the Old Testament seems to be involved in that kind of a story. Yet God chose to give the law knowing full well that people have a tough time in following it. He chose to give them the law. We know that it came down through his prophet Moses to the children of Israel, and we understand that it was so important that that law <clears throat> was put into a box called the ark, and it was kept forever as a testimony to the foundational principle of God's chosen people. Now that ark is also called the ark of the covenant. Covenant means promise. God promise to his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. And what's at the foundation of this? The law. The Ten Commandments is what we sometimes call them, the Decalogue. The law is foundational to God's people's relationship with him. That's what we know. Well, what about the New Testament? Well, John just read a little while ago from Matthew chapter 5, and this is fascinating because Jesus is right in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, right? He's going to give this sermon that everyone loves. Even if you're not a Christian, people quote from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they. We like that. That sounds great. But we sometimes forget the fact that later on in his sermon, he says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Jesus is trying to ed educate us on God's version of Maxner's laws. He's saying, no, the law is going to stay in place. No matter what else may come, I am going to fulfill the law. It's kind of like when we think about sanctification, like I said just a second ago, we like to think about grace and mercy and, oh man, God, you know I'm going to mess up and I need your forgiveness and I need to really struggle on gaining some abilities to do what doesn't come naturally, and I've always got this pull towards sin. I, I don't want to, but I do. And sometimes, for some of us, it becomes kind of wishy-washy, doesn't it? We don't really understand it as a hard and fast law. We think of it as like, that's a goal. That's the thing that we're trying to shoot for. But when you come to see what Jesus has to say about that law, the law doesn't go away. The law is still here. It's what Jesus is focused on. If we were to say, well, we don't need the law anymore, 
we have the cross of Christ, we have his mercy. I think just like the Apostle Paul writes, we would echo, God forbid. We need it. Well, this morning, let's take a second and let's look at it. What exactly is the law? As I said a second ago, when the children of Israel are being led by Moses out of Egypt from slavery, God gives them the law at Mount Sinai. Now, a couple things to keep in mind here, right? The children of Israel had been in Egypt for some 400 years. They hadn't heard from God through a prophet that entire time. It's possible that those Israelites, living in the midst of a wicked and godless people, had begun to pick up the mindset, the lifestyle, the expectations of the Egyptians. And in fact, we're confirmed on that because as they follow Moses through the wilderness, right? What do they do? Oh, God, we don't have enough of this. We don't have enough of that. We don't have enough of whatever used to make life so sweet back in Egypt. Even though we were in slavery, we do want to go back. We want to go to the land of leeks and onions. And we want to just enjoy life. And God knew that these people needed a refocus. They needed to remember who they were. God had called their forefather Abraham out of Ur. He had taken him all the way around and put him down in the promised land. And through Abraham's descendants, eventually the children of Israel found themselves in Egypt for a time. But now the time was such in God's sovereignty, he was bringing them out of that experience. And they were going to cross the Red Sea, they were going to wander in the wilderness and eventually cross the Jordan River and they were going to be in the promised land of Canaan. And God knew something had to change in their mindset. You no longer are going to be Egyptians. You're no longer going to live like them, think like them, be like them. Further, I cannot have you taking on the culture of the Canaanites that you're going to come into their land. And it says clearly, you're going to go into fields that you did not plow, and they'll be yours. And you're going to live in houses you did not build, and they will be yours. But I don't want you to take anything else of the Canaanites. You see, the Canaanites were full of sin. The, the way their cultures lived, they practiced openly sexual immorality, right? They were idol worshipers. They were people who had forgotten their creator, God. And the purpose of the law, the reason that God called Moses up to Mount Sinai, covered it with a cloud in his presence, gave Moses, etched upon stone, so that they could not be changed, altered, or adapted. And he gave them to him so that it would be a lasting testament of the relationship, the special relationship between God and his people. This law. Now, as I go through this this morning, I'm going to often reference the law, meaning foundationally the Ten Commandments. But it's also bigger than that and broader than that. Those of you who've read through those first five books that Moses supposedly writes, the Torah, that's all law. There are hundreds of laws. The law covered everything for Israel. How to purify oneself, how to wash your hands, how to cook your food, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, your sexual relationships, how marriage should be, uh, how parents should teach their kids, and so forth. It, it covered everything. This is the law. And as the Israelites are getting ready to cross that Jordan River and go into Canaan, 
they had to understand they were supposed to be different. They were different because God called them, he established them as his chosen people, and the foundational point of that establishment was the law. Now, this goes back even further than Moses giving the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. I would contend that the law is in fact a spelling out of the character of God. It's not just some random Ten Commandments or greater number of laws that he just decided he was going to institute at this point in human history when he gave Moses those two uh, tablets etched in stone of his commandments. No, I think these laws had been around forever because in fact, they are the very essence of God. This is his will, that we live this way, right? He did not want us to be like everyone else. And so therefore, I think you could argue that the law, the principles of the law, the precepts of the law have been around forever. God created this world, Adam and Eve, in the garden. It communicated the law to them. Now, Scripture only spells out a couple of different laws for them, such as you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there are other things that they were supposed to do or not do. That was said in a much more positive way. By the time we get to Moses' day, the law is being spoken of in a negative way. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder. In the beginning, I believe God's commands to his people was said in a much nicer way because they didn't have a sin nature. He had created them and it was good, right? It was their natural heart inclination to live as their father wanted them to live. But by the time you get to Moses, the law was necessary. The law came down hard, just like Mrs. Maxner's laws because we had a predisposition at that point to live in a different way. And if the law existed before the time of Moses, then I would contend that it also exists after the cross, in the New Testament, and beyond. After the day of Pentecost, God still expects his law to be followed. That's what we just read in Matthew chapter 5. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he says that weird line at the end, I expect your righteousness to be greater than the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the greatest keepers of the law in Jesus' day. They had not only took the law that Moses had given and tried to live by it, but they had made it even more strenuous by adding things to it, right? And Jesus says, no, I'm going to change things a little bit, but I'm not getting rid of the law. So how does the law impact us? most in this day and age. Well, as I just said a second ago, the Old Testament is replete with stories of failure to follow the law. And an important side note here that I'm sure most of us have picked up on when we read about this law is that when the children of Israel break the law, they're in relationship, even though they're the chosen people with a holy God, and a holy God cannot abide being in fellowship with a people that keep breaking the law, that sin. So something had to happen. So God created a nifty little thing, a payment plan, if you will, by which the children of Israel could atone for their sins. So the tabernacle is created as the children of Israel are wandering around, big giant tent. There's priests, right? 
Aaron's the first one, his sons follow, and so forth throughout Israeli history. And people, when they sin, come at appointed times of the year, and they bring livestock. It could be a steer. It could be a lamb. It might be something as simple as a turtle dove. And they give it to the priest, confessing their sin. In the very act of giving them that animal, they're saying, me and my family, we have sinned. We've broken the law. And we need atonement, or the wrath of God will be poured out upon us. And the priest would take that animal, and he would kill it. And he would open it, and he would pour blood into specially prepared vessels. And out of those vessels then, the priest would take a brush, swirl it in that blood, and he would sprinkle it right on the dad of that family, indicating your sins are covered. Your sins are covered. Your sins are covered. That's going on even as the New Testament opens up. We see Jesus as a young boy going to the temple during the season of Passover. <clears throat> and what was the point of going to the temple at all? It was to offer atonement for sin. It was the necessity of having a sacrifice. So, in the Old Testament, if it was a colossal failure and the sacrificial system was needed, by the time we get into the New Testament, things haven't really changed a lot except for how we understand that law. There was that group of people that I just told you about, the Pharisees, but there were also lawyers and scribes, and they made it a point of their life during Jesus' three years of ministry to try to trip Jesus up. <clears throat> All these people were coming out to see him. He was so popular. People wanted to be healed of their diseases. They wanted their demons cast out. They wanted to hear the truth about how to be related to God. And these men came out and tried to trip him up. And one of my favorite stories is in Luke chapter 10, when a certain lawyer comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, okay, if you're so smart, I added that part, if you're so smart, what's the greatest commandment in Scripture? And Jesus said, well, yeah, what do you think the greatest commandment is? And they're in agreement, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and body, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. But actually, as you read the pages of Scripture, Jesus is going to take this law that was established, and he is going to do something radical with it, right? Uh, people would come to him and say, well, I'm a righteous man. That's what these Pharisees would say, because I have not slept with anyone that wasn't my wife, right? I am a righteous man because I have never borne false witness. I am a righteous man because I have never murdered anyone. And Jesus is like, no. Hold on, hold on. The rules are changing. You see, because of the stiffness of the necks of your fathers that Moses led out of Egypt, this is how the law sounded. But in truth, because the law is a representation of God himself, this is what the truth is. You say that you haven't committed adultery because you haven't slept with someone? I say this to you. If you have lusted after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Wow. What does that say about pornography today? What does that say about guarding our eyes and our hearts? Uh, you say that you haven't murdered anyone. But Jesus says, if you've hated someone, you have committed murder. You say that you haven't borne false witness. You haven't been involved in a civil uh, proceedings. 
where you needed to come up and lie about what really happened in a situation. But you know what? If you gossip, if you don't look to the good of your neighbor. You see, Jesus takes all these laws and he expands them. Well, all I have to do is tithe, give 10%. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Everything you own is God's. You see, the law is not abolished. The law is just removed from the confines that it used to exist in because of the stubbornness of our hearts. And Jesus is saying, now that grace is available for you as Christians, now that you have the ability because the Holy Spirit lives in you, I'm changing the definition of those laws. They're not ten simple commandments. It's a lifestyle. It's a totality, a wholeness. There's no getting around that. So what's the benefits of this law? Well, first of all, we have to understand that Jesus did actually continue the payment plan, right? If in the Old Testament, a family had to bring an animal to be sacrificed for their sin, so in the New Testament, we are told that Jesus came and lived a life. Just like Adam did, the first man created, so Jesus is called the second Adam. First man failed, plunging all of mankind into sin. The second man came and he lived that law to the letter. He lived it perfectly without a blemish of sin. And because he did that, he is uniquely qualified to go to that cross, which he chose to do, have himself nailed to it and raised up. And the condemnation and penalty for all of our sins are placed upon him. He makes atonement for us. This is better than the animal system, right? Because this is not a temporary benefit. This isn't something that we have to pre, uh, repeat annually. It happened once and for all. Nearly 2,000 years ago, God sent his only son into the world to be offered up as a sacrifice so that whosoever believes, right, in that efficiency, in the atoning work of that cross can experience redemption. <coughs> that is what happened in the New Testament. And we're still benefiting from that today. So for the Christian, for the individual who listens to this, the law hasn't been broken. It's been fulfilled. Jesus is done with it as it was always intended to be done with it. It makes a way to God. It defines us as God's people. But what about our culture as a whole? Now, if you're old and you have gray hair like I have, you grew up in a time when those Ten Commandments were in this country everywhere you went. My friends and I, we would go to a bank. We would go to a courthouse. We would go to an office building. You could go to a park, and there would be a plaque, and the Ten Commandments were everywhere. Why? Because we used to say in this country that our laws are based foundationally upon those commandments. God's law wasn't just for his people. God's law is also for culture. It does something to culture. Just like I discovered in Mrs. Maxner's room in fourth grade, 
So when culture follows God's foundational laws, his commandments, things turn out better. Now, we've had several eras of antinomian belief. That means against the law. And nothing probably screams anarchy and throwing off uh, restrictions like the 1960s, right? I grew up in that period of time. We don't want to have to live like our parents did by some antiquated set of Victorian principles. We don't want to live with puritanical ideals. We want to be free, <coughs> free to live any way that we want to live. We don't want to have to be married in order to have sex. We don't want to have clothing that doesn't let us express ourselves. We, we want to have less government, less church, less God, so that we can be the humans that we were supposed to be. It's no mistake that abortion was legalized right after that decade. It's no mistake that we see all kinds of fractured families as a result of that. How many children are born without a father, uh, without a mother that are in the home, giving them support and help? All you have to do is turn on the news today. Without the foundational principles of God's commandments, chaos reigns. I don't care what culture it is. I don't care in what country you're talking about. The world was created by God. He is the creator. People were created by God. And he gave us the rules to follow. And even as Christians who have experienced the wonderful grace of God, we need to live by those foundational principles. Here's the truth. The thing that made Israel so amazing was that when they moved into the land of Canaan, all the people that surrounded them could look at and see how they lived. It was so different from everyone else. You worship just one God? You don't make pictures of him. You don't worship a, a, an image made out of rock or wood. Your families are supposed to be intact. What is going on, right? And so people were attracted to the Israelites. Either that or they hated them, one way or the other. So the church should be that set-apart group of people. God's foundational principles in his law should set us apart as a community in the midst of this culture. But we have a problem. We're more like the Israelites coming out of Egypt than we are as the church coming out of Pentecost, right? Our churches, <coughs> our people, look a very much like the culture that we live in. Our families are fractured. Our marriages are falling apart. We have sexual immorality in the church. God is calling us to repentance. God is saying, no, I want you to live as to be the people that I have called you to. The whole reason we've done this seven weeks of sanctification is to call each one of us, and this includes me, to repentance. Observe, understand who God is. And if I'm going to live to please Jesus Christ, I have to understand that law. I didn't grow up going to church. I think I've told that to you many times. But even I was asked to memorize those Ten Commandments as a child. We did it in school in those days. I think the teachers saw that as an aid to them as they tried to, you know, rain terror upon us. But we knew them. I wonder how many today who are listening to me can recite those Ten Commandments, who know them, 
We used to see them everywhere, but now we don't. You can remove the Ten Commandments from buildings. You can say, well, separation of church and state. But you cannot remove a people from their God. You cannot remove the need for us to respect our Creator. Martin Luther says this in his book, The Bondage of the Will, and I love this book. He talks about the fact that the law is man's response to God. I'm going to read the law, I'm going to meditate upon the law, I'm going to understand the law so that I can live my life in a way that is pleasing to him because that is the ultimate goal of my life <coughs> is to have fellowship with him. Grace is above that law and that's God's response to us. As we live the law and we fail time and time again, Unlike in the Old Testament, now that we're in the New Testament, because Jesus has died on that cross and made atonement for us, grace is now available. And God responds to us with his love and his mercy, but he never takes away that law. He never takes away how we're supposed to live. When you take away that law, what happens? People become a law unto themselves. Whatever I think is right is right. Whatever I think is wrong is wrong. There's no objective, transcendent, ethical standard that I have to follow. It's how I feel on Monday. It may be changed when I get to Tuesday. Who knows? But I demand and I expect <coughs> everyone else to respect my understanding of righteousness. But that's not what the Word of God says. So what are we going to do with this this morning? Well, it's easy. First of all, I don't want you to take these Ten Commandments and start keeping track. Like, well, I'm not too bad a person. Eight out of ten, seven out of ten, it's not too bad, right? You know, I'm, I'm doing okay. Well, that's not what the Ten Commandments are all about, right? Because again, as I said earlier, if you keep them the way that Jesus talked about them, I think all of us are about 0 for 10 right? You don't have to live too long in this life to know that you're not going to meet his standards. So the second thing the law should do is spur us on to looking for satisfaction of the penalty of God for breaking his law. And the only thing that he established, the only way to get God on your side is to come to Jesus humbly, is to pray and say, God, I want the covering of Christ's blood in my life. I need him. Remember, we've been talking about four foundational principles in the sanctification series. Christ died for me on the cross, right? I live in Christ. I talked about being immersed in him, like putting on a Halloween outfit a couple of weeks back. <coughs> Thirdly, I've been crucified with Christ so that my old man is no longer the power that it once was. And because I've been crucified with Christ, I have all the benefits of his resurrection. This is the cool part. The resurrection after the cross, three days later, signifies to us that that sacrifice was acceptable to God the Father. Hear me. That sacrifice was acceptable to God the Father. Now Jesus sits at the right hand of God, and he distributes his gifts to his children, and he advocates for us. When you and I break that law, when we sin today, all Jesus does is stretch out his nail-imprinted palms to his Father and says, paid for. This has been paid for. No judgment. 
No condemnation. They're your children. They're part of your household. Love them. I love them. And God says yes. Amen. So the story of Scripture is this. We see Jesus at the beginning of time helping to create this law. Thus he is a lawmaker. Secondly, Jesus comes incarnate in the Gospels and he lives his life to keep every facet of the law, even the ways that he described it. No lust in the heart, no anger in the heart, so forth. And so the lawmaker becomes the law keeper. And then at the end of his life, he decides to make that ultimate sacrifice and he becomes the animal brought before the priest to have his blood poured out as they did every Passover. And his blood is sprinkled upon us. Thus the lawmaker became the law keeper, became the law breaker for you and for me. If you haven't done business with Christ in your life, if you're still trying to keep those Ten Commandments on your own, can I encourage you to deal business with Christ today, to give your life and your heart to Jesus? Because that's the only way to the Father. I had a guy ask me recently, is Jesus really the only way to God? And when I said yes, I could tell he was greatly discouraged because he wasn't ready to make that commitment yet. But there's no getting around this law. It condemns us unless we know Jesus is our Savior. That's the value of it. And then once we do know Jesus, we can live our life for him. And the law just becomes a guideway. How we can please God, it says so right here. Right? All right. That's my prayer for you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. I thank you that your son was willing to die for us. That he went to that cross. He offered up his life. He paid the price for the penalty of our disobedience. And now, Father, we have the benefit, the freely given benefit of participating in that with him, of being your children. You've chosen to adopt us, to love us. Your Holy Spirit will seal us for the point of redemption when we ourselves go to resurrection and come into the presence of God. Thank you, Father, for your entire counsel, for your entire word, for your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.